Well, good morning, Crossworders, and welcome to another week here with us on Crossword Online. Uh, it's with great excitement that I get to share this final uh, message with you in our Matthew series that we are looking at, at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And as we are fast approaching Christmas now, uh, we really hope that uh, this uh, exploration of a genealogy, something that we so often overlook or uh, don't spend much time uh, considering or contemplating, that it will really uh, get you excited um, to just consider the depth of God's incredible plan and purpose through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as for this uh, passage this morning, I'm going to take a look at uh, Matthew 1 verse 12. And we're going to read through to verse 17 and just pick up on some of the ideas uh, or some of the names at least uh, and maybe the ideas that uh, that leaves us with. Uh, so let me read for us and then I'm going to pray and then we'll consider these uh, these names and also the final aspect of what this uh, passage is all about. After the, ex- after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elakim, Elakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that we can see your incredible plan and your incredible purpose unfolding through time and history and with certain events and things that took place. Uh, in history before uh, your your Savior, your Messiah, your Son, Jesus Christ, entered this world. And that as we do consider these names, these people, and the way that Matthew has constructed them for us, that we truly see the incredible depth of your plan, your purpose. But ultimately that we find ourselves resting at the end of the day in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fulfillment of that incredible plan. So gracious Father, as we turn to this passage this morning, as we consider your son Jesus Christ and his line, that we are filled with joy and filled with uh, a thankfulness and uh, are filled to the brim with excitement to celebrate uh, his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection this season. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you if you found that this passage uh, was rather peculiar, or at least the names were peculiar. Uh, for me, uh, I can honestly say that I don't know many of these names. Um, and so what do we make of all of these names that we are given? Uh, perhaps you are like me, you pick up uh, some names that sound familiar, but that are most likely not as uh, familiar as what we would originally think. Uh, Or perhaps you chime in in verse 16 uh, where it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who who is called the Messiah. Uh, Suddenly there's names that you know and that you are familiar with. 
But the question uh, that we need to ask is, well, why are we given these names? Why are we told about these names that we don't know, we don't have a record of, we don't know anything significant about the, this genealogy of, of Jesus, these 14 generations in particular, as Matthew highlights them? Uh, there is very little information that is given to us. And so why, why look at it this morning? Why turn to these names? Why is it so important? Well, I think firstly, what we do need to recognize for us today is that this is the line out of which Jesus comes. This is where Jesus is born out of. Uh, it ends there with Joseph and Mary uh, and then ultimately Jesus Christ. And so we get to the birth of Jesus through these names. But why is uh, this section important? Well, notice there's something first, there's a bit of a clue for us at least. And that is in verse 12. It says, after the exile to Babylon, um, these were the names uh, that started to come to the surface. And uh, as well, if we pick up in verse 17, what it says there, uh, as it highlights, thus were the 14 generations in all from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So <clears throat> the first thing that we perhaps need to just recap on in order to get a better understanding of what is going on is in the first generation or the first genealogy or the first uh, 14 generations, should I say, we had the covenant. There was a covenant made with Abram and a covenant made with David. And we see the expansion of that covenant. We see that God was making a, a covenant uh, with each one individually. But they grow in their depth as uh, God establishes his people, as God establishes his plan and his purpose. And so we had Abram through to David, an incredible reminder that our Lord God is a God of a covenant. He's a covenantal God, not just any covenant, but he makes a covenant that is everlasting. So when God makes a covenant, he makes a covenant to last. The other thing that we pick up, if we recap just to the, the following 14 generations, is that we had that of kingship. Uh, we had the establishment of David as the first king, running all the way through to Josiah uh, or to Jeconiah uh, or Jehoiakim, however you want to look at it. And this really highlights the kingship period for Israel, uh, particularly before exile. So these were the names of the kings that ruled over, uh, over Israel before they were taken off into exile. And we had this picture of David who obviously received the covenant, Solomon who established the temple. So if you recall if you recall from last week what we looked at was this picture of God's people and God's place under God's rule. So you have God's people who is established under the headship of the king in God's place at this point conquered uh, David conquered Jerusalem so he is established God's place in Jerusalem and that is where they are established all the way until they are taken off into exile. And under God's rule, we see that God ultimately rules his people through his established king that he appoints. But even when the king fails, God's rulership doesn't come to an end. And so we see that particularly at the end of this, uh, these uh, generations, these 14 generations, that when the time came, uh, the nation had continued to rebel. And so what took place is that instead of God leaving Israel to govern themselves and to rule themselves, God reveals that he is still ruler and Lord and king over them as he allows them to go to be handed over into the hands of the Babylonians. And so they are taken off into exile, but purely because God had 
uh, willed it. God had intended it. And so we see that God, uh, over his people, uh, in his place, God is still the Lord and King and ruler over his people. So God's people, God's place under God's rule, we see how God uh, uh, intervenes and uh, rules and reigns over his people. As for this week, we have the issue of the exile. And so Israel have no place uh, in the sense of they are not in Jerusalem. And Israel, having been removed from Jerusalem, there almost seems to be a question of identity in the sense that uh, if you want to go into Israel's history looking at those that come back out of the exile, there are those that actually give up their identity as Israelites and are far more willing to settle uh, in foreign lands than to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to the promised land, to go back to the place that God had intended for them. Uh, Beyond that, we also have the issues of as you consider Israel uh, as their people and place and rule, is that there seems to be an aspect where God allows another ruler, foreign ruler, to actually be there uh, to rule over them. And so it it seems that during this exile, uh, Israel in many ways also seems to disperse and become thin. And that is not the intention that God actually intended. If you recall the covenant that was made with David is that God allows punishment to his king. But ultimately if it's to the king it is therefore to the people as well. And God permits punishment not because he hates his people. Not because he wants to uh, afflict his people with harm. But because he wants his people to trust and depend on him. And so ultimately when we think of it in light of the covenant that was made with David. The punishment that comes about as they go off into exile is a result, is a product of Israel's disobedience to trust and serve the Lord. And ultimately, as a result, the Lord punishes them in the hope that they will come back to him, in the hope that they will return. Now, unfortunately, if you know the exile story, there, there is a small remnant that return, out of, uh, return back to Israel, which is a really sad day if you think about it. That the punishment was not intended to turn people away, but actually to really remind people of who their Lord and God is. And to hopefully bring them back, those that are faithful and that those that really trust and depend on Him. The further aspect to their return out of uh, exile is that of the establishment of the temple once more. And as we highlighted uh, last week looking at the, the temple, uh, as it was established by Solomon, and that's part of the kingship, uh, as Solomon was the king who, who built the temple, we realize that after they return out of exile, there is great uh, mourning and, and weeping as they see that the temple doesn't compare to what uh, Solomon's temple was like. And so there's this, there's this great devastation in the fact that this is not what uh, they knew, what they desired, what they thought was right for for the Lord's temple and his dwelling place. And so we have these issues that surface, these problems, uh, as Israel even returns out of exile. And then we have this strange thing that takes place. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of silence. Nothing is said. And we don't know of people, we don't know of the names, we don't know of the genealogy, other than perhaps some of these names that surface of those that link us back to those that went into exile. And as we look back, uh, there seems to be an Israel in disarray. 
And what I mean by this is, really, if we reflect back uh, from before the birth of Jesus Christ to the exile, as Israel was being carried off into exile, Israel never seems to become the Israel that they were before. Even under the wickedness of the kings, they never measure up to what it was. The temple never measures up at this point to what it was like with Solomon. The temple never measures up to to its grandeur and its, and its incredible structure. Uh, but also it never measures up to being uh, established by a true king of Israel. And later on we find that the temple that is in Israel is built by Herod, King Herod, who is in many ways he's working for the Roman, in some ways for the Roman government, uh, more so than, than anybody else in some ways. And so you have this weird situation happening where Israel as a nation is never truly re-established. You have uh, Roman uh, camps amongst the Israelites. There's There's so much mixture and strange things taking place uh, in Israel's history at this point. And so that 400 years, you see the temple had been destroyed, rebuilt, nothing compared to what it was. That temple was eventually re- it was destroyed or knocked flat to be replaced by King Herod's one that took 40 years to build. And it seems that Israel is never really regrouped as a nation as they once were. Israel is not the the powerful empire that it once was uh, in some ways. Not that they were incredibly powerful, but that they were never really re-established within their land um, as they thought they, they would be. And so as you look at these names... Uh, it's as it says after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheertil, and as the names unfold, you you kind of think about this. There is uh, a, a lack of establishment of Israel as a nation. We we as the reader don't even know who these people are anymore. It's as if Israel has lost their very identity at this point in Israel's history. For four hundred years, there's there's silence. We hear nothing. We know nothing as the reader today. We don't know these names. Israel's not established as a nation as it once was. And everything just seems to be worse. Everything just seems to be disappointing. Everything just seems to be uh, a reflection of what it once was. And so it becomes a sad situation when we look at Israel as Christ comes onto the scene. It's not what one would expect or hope it to be. It, it, it is nothing compared to what it once was. It's nothing compared to what it was when David ruled or when Solomon ruled. And as it declined under the rulership of the kings, it, it never even got to that point again. And here today we look at the introduction uh, and the birth. Of Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus Christ comes from this line. We see Jesus Christ introduced into this line. Jesus Christ enters into a family that is steeped in God's covenantal promises with his people, God's establishment of kingship of his people in his intended place under his rule. And then Jesus enters in through the most ominous of circumstances. Jesus enters into this genealogy of names that we don't know. Through almost the nobodies of the history 
of this genealogy. If there was ever a, a section in David's line or Abram's line that, that seems to be uh, unimportant, it seems to be this. Unimportant, obviously, until Christ is born. And also on top of that, it, it becomes complicated. Notice verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. It's complicated. Mary is the husband of Joseph. But Joseph, when you read the story around Jesus' birth, he, he wants to divorce Mary because she falls pregnant. And they're not married. She's still a virgin. And suddenly there's this cloud hanging over the very conception of Jesus Christ. If there was ever a setting that seemed a confusing, sad, frightening setting, it is this. Nobody knows for us at least today. Not many of us know who these people are. We know that Jesus is born to a woman that isn't entirely married. She's betrothed to Joseph. Joseph eventually decides to marry her, which is phenomenal. And Mary falls pregnant under peculiar circumstances. King Herod, who's ruling at the time, hears about some prophecy, some prophetic word, or some uh, pointing to a king that's going to rise up and rule and reign. And Herod gets frightened and he starts killing babies, infants, up to the age of two. He starts slaughtering children. If the time of Jesus' birth seemed convenient or beautiful or amazing, one needs to reconsider. Jesus comes out of a peculiar circumstance. Matthew helps us to see how Jesus links back all the way to Abram, to David. But the problem with it is, it's not clean, it's not neat, it's not perfect, it's messy, it looks like life. This life is a complicated one, it's a messy one. But wrapped up in this, God has a plan. And for us, Matthew seems to perhaps be trying to show us that. It's not just any plan. There are some that perhaps will point you in this direction, and it's maybe something just worth mentioning, that this genealogy, this genealogy that is given doesn't necessarily make sense. There's a lot of names omitted. So why has Matthew omitted so many names? Well, he's trying to do something for us, particularly 
Verse 17 says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. But Matthew, we know that that's not true. So why, why are you saying that there are 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations? Well, what some people will tell you is that 14 is a rather significant number. If you had to take uh, David's name, the Messiah, the King, uh, and count his letters. Now, in the Hebrew, if you count letters, you count in consonants. There's no real vowels. Uh, as we have in English today, in Hebrew. And so David is a what you call a D-V-D, or D-V-D, D-V-D, as we have it. And those letters are represented by numbers. So if you go with English, you go A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, D is 4. Uh, in the Hebrew alphabet, WA, uh, or V, for us today, is equal to 6. And the D is equal to 4. And they say that if you take David's name and you add it up 4 plus 6 plus 4, you get to 14. And so you have Abram to David is 14. It's David. And from David to, uh, to Jehoiakim, uh, uh, Jeconiah, you have 14. David. And from Jeconiah through to Jesus, you have 14, David, David again. And so what many scholars will say and suggest is that actually what Matthew is trying to do here is he is trying to point to the true David, the true king, the real Messiah. If you recall us looking at 1 Samuel, you see the picture, it's there. David is the Messiah He is the anointed one. He is the king that Israel has waited for. And David is the man after God's own heart. But there is one even greater. One Messiah, one king, one savior, one Lord who is perfect. He is the true David. And that is Jesus Christ. So perhaps what Matthew is trying to paint for us is the picture of uh, this king that will rise up. The kingship of Jesus Christ. And just like David himself was born uh, out of a shepherd family, and he himself was a shepherd, Jesus comes out of this background that seems almost insignificant for us today. I mean, there's words... There's in 1 Samuel people wondering who Jesse is. Who this son of Jesse is. Well here we have David and we are told that Jesus is the son of David. He is the true Messiah, the true King, the true Savior, the true one that measures up far greater than David himself. And so why is this significant for us today? Well, in God's perfect plan, we have this unfolding genealogy from Abram to David. We see God's covenant. And from David 
through to Jeconiah, we see God's establishment of kingship in His kingdom. And from Jeconiah through to Jesus, we see the manner in which He establishes that to complete it, to perfect it. See, what's interesting is you have, in the first section, what makes up 14, you can see is at 7 and 7. And so you have three 14s, or six 7s. And Jesus comes along, and He perfects it. He becomes the completion of all things. He is the one that completes this genealogy. Jesus Christ is the perfect king, the perfect covenant keeper, the perfect savior, the perfect lord, the perfect life giver. And that doesn't mean that Jesus was perfect from his very conception. But what I mean by this is that through his life, through enduring all the things that the generations before failed to do, that they struggled with, that they sinned in, Jesus Christ succeeded. Jesus Christ was made perfect through His death and resurrection. And for us today, He becomes our perfection. You see, Abram through to Joseph and Mary, there is sin and problems and issues in the world. But Jesus Christ comes to do the impossible. He lives out a life to the point of perfection, so that through his life we may enter in, that we may have life. Jesus is able to live up to the covenant, and he makes a perfect covenant through his blood for us today. That in him we have life. We have a king, we have a ruler, a saviour, a messiah, the true David. It's another thing to just consider as we close and as we consider this passage today. As Jesus enters this world out of the 14 generations of names that are nearly forgotten and unheard of today. But the most incredible thing is out of all of these names, he is the one name that everybody has heard of. Just about everybody knows the name of Jesus Christ. Believer or not, there is familiarity in his name, 
even if it comes out of a line or a generation of names that nobody knows. Isn't that a remarkable thing? And you don't have to go far. You So often you just have to listen to, uh, go and watch a show on TV or something and people use his name. Might not be a good reason, but people use the name of Jesus Christ, whether they believe in him or not. So from Abram to David to Solomon to Jeconiah to Mary and Joseph, we come to Jesus who perfects God's incredible plan. God's plan that was unfolding all the way through from Abram all the way through David. And Jesus becomes the re-establishment, the restoration and the perfection of God's people in God's place under God's rule. You see where Israel is dwindling and being overruled by all sorts of things throughout the exile and all of that. They long to be restored and made whole as a nation again. Well, Jesus goes far beyond that. He doesn't only restore and establish Israel as a nation once more, but in actual fact, he opens the way of adoption for all of us. And perhaps you ask, why is Joseph and Mary included in this? Well, there's a beautiful picture that actually gets painted for us, that Joseph, by marrying Mary, he adopts Jesus. And it's rather ironic that the very one that adopts Jesus gets adopted by Jesus himself. That we sitting here today are adopted. We are adopted into God's people, into God's place, under God's rule, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we come to Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, may we not forget the incredible history in His name and the incredible perfection in His life. That as Christ lived, He did what we fail to do. And that through His life, through His death and through His resurrection, He perfectly completed what we could not do. He restores his people. He rebuilds the temple in himself. And he gives life as the true king and true ruler rather than take. So may you be filled with a celebration of the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this Christmas. May this fill you with a true sense of hope. And as we come to the end of this talk, I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his humble beginnings. We thank you for your plan of kingship in him. We thank you for your plan of covenant in him. 
and we thank you for your plan of completion in him. That as we look to Jesus today, we see that he fulfills and completes your plans and your purposes. And that as we celebrate Christmas, we don't simply celebrate the day or the festivities or the season or the baby Jesus, but we celebrate all the entirety of his life, his death and his resurrection. That in him you have established an everlasting covenant for us today. That you invite us in and make us part of your people, part of your place and under your rule. So gracious Father, may we not be short-sighted, may we not overlook the incredible depth of this season and to celebrate our Lord and Saviour who restores and completes all things for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I pray and hope that you do have a wonderful Christmas and we will see you on Christmas Day as we share with you uh, a message. But I do hope that uh, you may be celebrating uh, the story, the unfolding plan and picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over this time. Have a lovely day and we'll see you all again. Cheers. Bye.